The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well, good morning, Springs Church. To everybody here in the room, to everybody tuning in online, to all of our visitors out there this morning, welcome in the name of Jesus Christ. We're really, really grateful that you're here gathered to worship this morning our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and if you are a visitor, we want to once again encourage you to fill out a visitor card, which you can find in the lobby, or you can find online by scanning the QR code in your Sunday sheet. We're a church that is being transformed into the image of Christ so that anyone can find the way to God, and so I'm grateful that you've gathered with us this morning to seek that transformation. And I also wanted to thank anybody who was here last week, anybody who lifted a finger, put in hours, blood, sweat, tears, all the volunteers that made last Easter weekend so special. We had a Good Friday service that was just wonderful that raised money for Ukraine. We had an Easter breakfast that was just lovely up there, and then we had a service in here together. Thank you so much to everybody who put forth all of the volunteering that needed to happen for that to come together. So thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts, from the staff, from the leadership, and from the church. It was just a really special Easter weekend here at the Springs. But I'm excited to continue with you this morning in your story, Scripture and the Mission of God, our current sermon series. And if you remember from the beginning of this series, the word your in that title functions in two ways. It functions as an address from us to God, of God, we, we've come here this morning to celebrate and recall and meditate upon your story revealed in scripture. And also it functions as an address from God to us. That when we come to recall and meditate upon and celebrate God's story, he tells us that this is also your story. So let's dive back into that story together, our story, in Matthew chapter 10, verses one through seven. And he called to them his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Lord God, we come together this morning. And we declare that this is the word of the Lord. And in turn, we give thanks. We give thanks and gratitude and praise to you for giving us this word. And Lord, we ask for ears and hearts and eyes that are open enough to receive the truth in this text. 
ears and hearts and eyes that are open enough to receive from your Holy Spirit illumination. And God, that you would help us put these words into practice. I ask you for the gift of preaching, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. What happens when we turn the page from Malachi to Matthew? What happens when we turn from Malachi to Matthew? You know, the very last verse in the Old Testament is Malachi chapter four, verse six. And when we turn the page on Malachi four, verse six, not only are we turning from Malachi to a book called the Gospel of Matthew, not only are we jumping some four centuries ahead in time, we're also moving from what we call the Old Testament to the New Testament. And that's the jump we're making in our sermon series this morning. We are moving from the Old Testament, and we're going to keep talking about God's story in the New Testament. And if you're somebody who hears that and thinks, oh, what a sigh of relief, so glad to be out of the Old Testament, not so fast. You see, if we were Christians in the first century, if we could somehow teleport time travel back to the first century, if we were to walk into a gathering, a house church of Christians, their Bible is the Old Testament, right? So we're moving forward into the Gospels and into the book of Acts, but these Christians, this Jesus movement, their Bible is the Old Testament. And so we never leave it behind. Right, And I know that there are stories and things in the Old Testament that are strange and unsettling and even disturbing at times. But the question, church, has never been whether or not the church can accept the Old Testament. Right? Robert Jensen says, that's getting it backwards. It's never been, can the church accept the Old Testament? It's been, can the Old Testament accept the church? <clears throat> Can the Old Testament accept the church? In other words, is Jesus really the fulfillment of God's story with Israel? Is Jesus and his followers, is that really the continuation of the Old Testament? And to put it in the language of our series, is God's story with Israel also really our story with Jesus? This is what we want to ask this morning and, and focus on because I think it matters how we connect the dots of God's story. Right? It, it matters how we connect God's story in the Old Testament all the way to this same story happening in the New Testament. And one of the images I want us to, to think about and change this morning is the relationship of the church to Israel. Right? I think sometimes when we think of the church and its relationship to Israel, we think of it like an interception. God's got the ball and he throws this beautiful, perfect spiral pass downfield, and Israel's running its route and they trip and fall on the ground, and the church swoops in and grabs the ball out of the air. I think sometimes that's how we view the relationship of the church and Israel, of the New Testament and the Old Testament. But I want to change the image this morning. I don't think what we have is an interception. I want to change the image to a huddle. There's a mass of players on this team of Israel. 
And some of them have varying ideas in the first century about what God's real strategy is, what he's doing to lead them to victory. And Jesus, the captain of the team, calls them around himself and gathers this small group to huddle, to teach them God's strategy to move towards victory. In other words, Israel is lost and scattered, and Jesus gathers the church to renew Israel. The story of Israel is not done. Right? God doesn't revoke his love or calling from Israel. Paul says as much in Romans 11. But Jesus gathers the church to renew lost and scattered Israel. So who does Jesus gather? Who does he huddle around himself? The 12 apostles. Jesus calls around himself. He starts with these 12 guys. And so that's where I want to dive in and look a little bit more closely as we continue God's story in Scripture. Let's go back to verse 1 of Matthew chapter 10. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The comedian John Mulaney has a little routine where he talks about his dad and how it's hard for grown men to make friends. And he he talks about how, you know, he says, all of our dads, you think your dad has friends, he doesn't. Your mom has friends, and those friends have husbands. And then he says, you know, I really think the, the greatest miracle of Jesus is that he's a man in his 30s with 12 best friends. 12 best friends, and they're not the friends of his wife, wife's friends, they're not guys he met a long time ago at school, he met them in his 30s, 12 best friends. That's quite a number of, of very, very close associates and followers for us to fathom. But it's interesting because the real significance of the number 12, I think, sometimes goes over our heads or just kind of blends into the background invisibly. And this significance would have been totally obvious to Jesus' first audience. We don't often stop to ask, why does he call 12? Why 12 apostles? Well, Jesus calls 12 apostles because for a Jew... The number 12 always meant the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel. Remember the patriarchs? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Ben preached about Abraham a few weeks ago. And Jacob, who's also called Israel, has 12 sons. Right? Israel has 12 sons. I bet we could probably go some ways towards naming all of them this morning if we put our heads together. I mean, of course, there's the obvious ones like Joseph and Judah and Benjamin and Lara and I, of course, named one of our sons Asher, one of the 12 sons of Israel. You don't get as many Naphtalis and Gads these days, sadly. We're not going to be announcing Zebulun van der Zee next month. <laughs> but the 12 tribes of Israel, right? This is the foundation of Israel as a people group. They trace these 12 tribes back to the 12 sons of Jacob, of Israel. And so Jesus 
calls 12 apostles, and for his original audience, he is skywriting to them, I am gathering the true Israel. I am gathering the true Israel around myself to restore and renew God's people and to lead them into God's perfect future. Israel is huddling around me. If you want to get in on it, get in on this group that I'm starting with these 12. And he is pointed at the future. Remember, as we've heard from the beginning of this series, this story is going somewhere. It's going to God's perfect ending, God's perfect future. And Jesus makes that connection explicit later in Matthew when he says in chapter 19, truly I tell you, he says to the 12 apostles, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man is seated on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel is lost and scattered, and Jesus gathers the church, huddles the church, to renew Israel, to renew and restore and lead God's people into the future. So Jesus is laser-focused on Israel, right? And I think that helps us make sense of one of those weird verses we got in verse five and six. Remember that these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You know, if that were the end of Jesus's instructions, I dare say none of us would be sitting here today. All right, if that were the end of his instructions and mission to his apostles, we'd be goners. But that's not the end. And of course, Jesus famously says at the very end of Matthew, as Elijah read this morning in his leader moment, right, go, therefore, as you go, make disciples of all nations. And right, so Jesus is heading to all nations, right? As, as Ben preached about Abraham, God's salvation is for all nations. He is going to bless all peoples. It is universal in scope, but it starts in the particular. It starts with one family, with one guy. Jesus is turning because he's laser focused to the house of Israel. And that makes sense, right? That makes sense that he would start with Israel, that salvation is first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, because they're God's chosen people, and two, they need renewal, right? Remember Ben's sermon last week about exile, about 587, the temple destroyed, they're scattered. Israel is lost and scattered. They need renewal, they need restoration before they can go to the nations. And there's a, a bank of Oklahoma across the street from my neighborhood. And if Bank of Oklahoma was struggling just to keep the lights on here in their home state, I can't imagine they'd want to try and expand to New Jersey. Jesus turns to Israel first because he is renewing and restoring Israel for God's future for all nations. So what's so special about this group that Jesus is huddling? 
What's so special about this little huddle, this gathered group? Well, I think, of course, the main thing that's special about the 12 is just Jesus himself, right? It's the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, the son of the living God, is calling these guys. That's what really makes them special. But I do think there's something interesting and special about the way Jesus constitutes this group. Let's look once again at verses three and four of our text in Matthew 10. He calls Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Now let's just skip over the fact that Jesus calls Judas who's going to betray him to be a part of the 12. That's a whole nother sermon. But let's talk for a minute about Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. Tax collectors. We all did our taxes, hopefully, this past week. If not, you've got homework when you get home. Tax collectors, as you may know, were not well-liked in the first century. The tax code was regulated by law, but there was a lot of wiggle room for them to be able to cheat people out of their money, and so they did often cheat people out of their money. And what's more, for Jews, tax collectors were really not liked because these Jewish tax collectors worked for the Romans, right? They're collecting taxes for the Romans and the Jews are not happy about being occupied and oppressed by the Roman Empire. So these tax collectors are viewed as kind of traitors to their own people, agents of the oppressive empire. And yet Jesus looks at Matthew and he says, come on. And it makes it all the more interesting next to the fact that Jesus calls Simon the zealot. Let's talk about zealots for a second. This word zealot, of course, means passionate devotion or dedication for us, and that's present in the word there in the New Testament, right? This zeal or being full of zeal. But it also meant a kind of political party in Judaism in the first century. And there's a little debate about how far it actually goes back as a faction, but it seems clear that Simon is connected in some way or is a member of this zealot political party, right? And these zealots were zealous for the Torah. They were zealous for the Jewish people. It was kind of a hyper-nationalist political party, right? And so, of course, they wanted to get rid of the Romans. They wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire. They had this kind of radical, revolutionary bent to them. So you can see the kind of strange coming together that's happening in just these couple names listed in the 12. Matthew, the tax collector, the traitor to his own Jewish people, agent of the oppressive empire. Simon, the zealot, the political revolutionary hyper-nationalist who wants to overthrow the Romans. And yet Jesus looks at these two guys and says, I can get these guys together. I can start a movement with these guys. Now we could say a lot about this fact, but I just wanna say a, a couple of things. I think on the one hand, this should tell us a lot 
about the kind of differences we should expect to find in the church. Right, if, if Jesus built this into the DNA from the very beginning, Simon the Zealot, Matthew the tax collector, then we should expect to find differences among ourselves. Right? And, and I don't think we should be saying, well, I can't worship with someone who believes that, or I can't get together in Bible class with somebody who's a member of that, or I can't be a follower of Jesus with someone who doesn't share my political beliefs. Matthew and Simon broke bread together, and so can we. Right? I, I don't know all of the, the affiliations present this morning, Republican, Democrat, Independent, Libertarian, Green, whatever. But let's not say we can't break bread together. Because here's the thing, church. Jesus is doing something way bigger than the things we let divide us. Amen? Amen. Jesus is doing something way bigger than the things we let divide us. So if Matthew and Simon can break bread together, if Matthew and Simon can follow Jesus together, if Matthew and Simon can worship the risen Lord, we can do that. We can do that. But this leads to the flip side of what I want to say about this this morning. And I think the flip side is, is as wonderful as it is that we can come together with all of our differences As wonderful as it is that we all bring different beliefs and identities and dispositions and actions to the table, we also can't assume that all of those beliefs and identities and dispositions and actions will remain untouched. We come together with our differences. You come with your tax collecting, I come with my zealotry. But Jesus might just change those things. Jesus might just have us put some of those things to death so that we can have life with him. Right? There there may be things, you know, Matthew probably thought a certain way about tax collecting before Jesus, but I bet he didn't think the exact same way about it after. I don't know what Simon thought about all of the zealot political party leanings, but he may not have thought about that differently after being with Jesus. He may have thought differently. So when we come together, Jesus is doing something way bigger than all the differences that divide us. But one of the things he's doing is putting to death all that separates us from him, putting to death all that inhibits flourishing, putting to death so that we can have life. Jesus is gathering the church to renew lost and scattered Israel. He's doing something bigger than all of the things that divide us. And for Jesus, life always comes through that death, right? Jesus teaches self-denial. Jesus teaches taking up our cross. And for Jesus, Life always comes and people are always gathered through life through death. I think one of the most stunning and mysterious facets of the universe that God created is black holes. Black holes are incredible and mysterious and fascinating and especially stellar mass black holes 
When you think about it, imagine a a star 10 times the size of the sun that runs out of fuel, and it can't hold itself together anymore, and so it explodes, and, and it collapses in on itself, and yet it sends the outer parts outward in this massive supernova explosion. And it's amazing because black holes, when they collapse in on themselves, the core, they're they're so massive and so dense that nothing can escape their gravitational pull. Not even light can escape the gravitational pull of a black hole. And yet also, what is sent outward in these shock waves sometimes also creates new life. Right? New stars are birthed into existence by this gas and dust that gets compressed. So there's a black hole with this incredible gravitational pull, but at the same time, the death of this star also brings new stars to life. Jesus is gathering Israel. And what makes Jesus' gravitational pull so strong is that Jesus teaches and lives life through death. Jesus teaches and lives and models for the 12 a life lived through death, through putting to death the things that separate us, through putting to death the identities and beliefs and dispositions that divide, through putting to death our selfish ambition and vain conceit and finding in him life. A life powerful and strong enough to bind us together as a community and to draw in all nations. And Jesus says as much. In the Gospel of John, chapter 12, Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, when I'm lifted up on the cross, will draw all people to myself. Jesus takes the most heinous, shameful death of rebels and traitors and slaves, and he transforms it into life. He transforms it into life for the world because Jesus is doing something way bigger than all the things that divide us. Jesus is taking lost and scattered Israel and he's huddling them around himself. He's gathering them, pulling them to himself so that he can lead Israel and the world into God's perfect future. And so we continue that gathering work of Jesus, church. We continue that gathering work by putting to death the things that divide, by putting to death our sin and inhibition and by living life for each other and the world. And that is a church that will draw people, right? That is a church when we can really get together and serve the poor with one another, when we can really get together and break bread, when we can really point people to the one who shows life through death. Jesus is drawing all people in. That is what we offer to the world. That is what we embody in baptism. When we are baptized, drawn into Jesus' death so that we might be drawn into his resurrected life. And it is baptism that grafts us into Israel so that we might live in God's story. 
church. Let us put that Jesus on display, a Jesus so powerful with life through death that no one can resist, a Jesus so powerful that he can lead us into God's perfect future. Let us lift up that Jesus on our praise right now, the Lord who gathers. Let's stand and praise him, church.